Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I'm your host, Tiasha Zaitz, and this episode is a reflection on the latest development around blockchain in healthcare. You will hear from Robert Miller, Director of Product Management and Strategy at Consensus Health. Consensus Health builds Ethereum-based solutions for cybersecurity, compliance, privacy, bioethics and identity, applying the deep technical capabilities of Consensus to advance the healthcare industry. The blockchain community knows Robert because of his regular newsletter about blockchain in healthcare. He is diligently following and reflecting on the development of the industry. We discussed why are patient health records on blockchain currently still a dream and which projects are in contrast slowly moving beyond the pilot phase. An interesting research initiative in healthcare is called Melody which stands for Machine Learning Ledger Orchestration for Drug Discovery. Melody is a collaboration among 10 major pharma companies that are using blockchain-based infrastructure and federated learning to speed up drug development. Robert shared his view on Melody, and I also added the link to his written analysis in the show notes. We also talked about the potential use of blockchain for vaccination certification and more. Enjoy the show and to read the recap or browse through other episodes as well, go to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. And if you haven't yet, do subscribe to the show to be notified about new episodes automatically. And now let's hear from Robert. Robert, the blockchain community knows you because of your newsletter about blockchain in healthcare. For a light start, tell me, how has the newsletter shaped you? How many uh, years have you been writing it up uh, by today? What have you learned? What fascinates you most? It's a good question. I think I've been writing on some form of my newsletter for almost three years now. In the very earliest iteration, I think maybe only a dozen people were a part of this, but in the very earliest iteration of it, I had just um, made a sign-up form and I would send people the blog posts that I wrote uh, three years ago on Medium whenever I published them. And then this started uh, two years ago now. I started to regularly blog about blockchain and, and healthcare every Sunday, uh, really because I was already reading these things. And I find writing to be a really incredible tool for thinking through things, of, of learning, of really making clear arguments and thinking critically uh, about the world. And I, one thing that my newsletter has taught me is just an appreciation for writing as, as a mode of thinking and uh, of distilling your thoughts 
that I didn't appreciate otherwise. Um, and over time, I mean, you know, the genesis of me running a newsletter was I, was I was doing this work and it was a way for me to work through it, uh, a way to learn. And over time, as I developed theses and, and thoughts that you, you see uh, reoccurring throughout my newsletter, sort of the substance of what I wanted to learn has changed. And I write fewer weekly newsletters of just like these events happened and more long form commentary now of uh, analyzing trends of really breaking down a subject or writing something that I felt like nobody else was, was saying or an observation of mine. Um, and that really tracks like my process of, of learning and, uh, yeah, the whole thing for me is, is, is about learning and sort of learning in public and seeing what other people react and getting smarter. So that's a brief overview. So from that perspective and looking back for three years and for a warm up into this discussion, because blockchain from the technical perspective is a complicated thing to understand. How do you see that uh, the development has changed or matured since you started writing uh, these uh, newsletters? Well, three years ago, I think there was less of a clear idea on the things that blockchains were really good at. I, it's you know I don't think people really understand this still three years uh, since then. But, um, you know, three years ago, there were all sorts of pie in the sky ideas on you know, what blockchain was going to imminently change and uh, how we were all going to be transacting and all these different cryptocurrencies and everything was going to be disrupted and yada, yada, yada. And you, know, you, you can argue like whether anybody ever really believed this or whether it was like a self-perpetuating machine of people trying to make money off of each other. Uh, but certainly the dominant narrative was is that blockchains were good for many more things than they actually are. And I think we're much closer to the truth, although maybe not there yet on, on the sort of things that they are actually good for. So what are blockchains not good about that you heard they were supposed to be good about? I think anytime you only have a single party involved in some ecosystem, um, it's not a good fit for blockchain. Almost always, there may be a couple exceptions for that. It is really about multiple stakeholders needing some common platform to do things. And if you can solve a problem with a single party in uh, some other infrastructure, that's probably the right thing to do. Uh, as opposed to using like this very slow distributed database that you know, the developer tooling isn't very good. It costs a lot of computational power compared to other things and et cetera. So you really need um, a problem where no single party can own the infrastructure, where the parties don't trust each other or may even be just uh, straight up adversarial and where there's a, a large trust deficit. Um, and th this is like a necessary condition for a blockchain solution to work, but it's not sufficient. So even if that exists, you may still not have a good blockchain solution uh, because it, it may be a good technical fit, but there may not be the right business incentives for a blockchain solution to take hold. So I, I think a lot of the times you'll see 
arguments about, um, you know, well, it would be really great if we put this process on a blockchain, uh, uh, pharma supply chains, maybe a good example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, sure, it, it would be good. And you can see how if everybody aligned on something, that would be uh, how it would add value. But the problem is, is not all the stakeholders in the pharmaceutical supply chain have the same incentives. And, you know, maybe some of the benefits of blockchain, like transparency aren't good in that context because if there is full transparency that means people who are selling you goods in a supply chain can see when you have low inventory and as a result they can charge you uh, more money when you have low inventory and price gouge or you know vice versa so full transparency is actually not a good thing uh, which is a an example just to illustrate that even if a blockchain is a good technical solution there may not be business incentives to adopt it uh not even touching on governance as well which is a whole different problem so you need to have something with the right technical problem to solve with the right business model uh across multiple stakeholders and then where there's a a governance model that that makes sense as well it's a pretty thin needle to thread Mm-hmm. That's a, actually a really, really good uh, example to to explain the issue of how the the components that blockchain is usually described with, which is transparency, immutability, enabling privacy, how those don't always fit into each use case. I think it would be great if in the first wave of COVID we had Uh, PPE equipment on blockchain, so PPE supplies, because they were going missing. So it was interesting to see that in October, the Estonian Guard Time uh, and SIGPA have announced a partnership with the World Health Organization to trace COVID-19 vaccines and provide tamper-proof vaccination certificates. So I guess what I'm wondering uh, from this example is how do you see the potential of the technology in the current pandemic? We talked about what blockchain is not good about, but where is the potential? Well, and and, uh, I don't want it to be a downer in this episode too, because blockchains (laughs) are good at many things. But I think this is an example of one thing that they probably are not very good at, uh, tamper-proof vaccination certificates. I was thinking about this in the early days of the pandemic and how you might have like a zero knowledge proof posted to a public blockchain as a result uh, to, to prove that someone has been vaccinated. And then, you know, you can use that to go about your regular life or maybe travel across borders and whatnot. But um, the problem with this is there's no good way to tie a person and their identity to a private key uh, and ensure that, the person that is showing you a certificate or like a digital certificate is actually the real identity, uh, the real person who that was issued for, right? No like tying of um, a real identity to a digital one in in a very, a strong enough way that I felt like it was a good solution. And without solving that problem, I don't, I don't know how you can provide um, vaccination certificates to, you know, really high, degree of um, confidence but uh you know i'm I'm really excited uh, about some of the work that's being done within the melody consortium of federated learning 
and having multiple enterprises, large enterprises, collaborate together to train artificial intelligence algorithms to speed up drug development. I think that's super interesting, and uh, it just pours gas on the fire that is already happening in, in speeding up biotech and uh, development of new therapeutics and vaccines. And uh, I'm also really excited about the work that's being done in the, the credentialing space of being able to um, use credentials and identities that were generated by one party in uh, multiple different contexts and reduce administrative overhead. And then there's this uh, other kind of design space of using a blockchain to adjudicate uh, business contracts between different parties where you otherwise would have um, this adjudication happening in silos. One party does some some calculations on their infrastructure, maybe in a spreadsheet. Another party does it on their infrastructure, and then they need to like compare answers. And, and usually the answers each party has is different. Uh, and so you, you see like this problem space within pharmaceutical supply chains um, in wholesaler chargebacks, as well as between, uh, well, pretty much any any stakeholder within the U.S. ecosystem, at least in value-based payments, of figuring out who owns who, how much money, depending on a patient's set of outcomes. So th- those are like uh, a couple different use cases that I'm excited about. I'm happy to dig into any of those if, if you want to talk about one or two specifically. Definitely. I definitely want to talk about Melody a little bit more. But just before that, um, since you mentioned credentialing, uh, which is tied to to identity of an individual, so to which extent does that differ from having a blockchain-based certificate about uh, vaccination? You know, the reason why I'm, I'm more excited about credentialing um, and not the health passports is that in the credentialing case, the hospital that someone is getting onboarded at will go to length to ensure that the person they're onboarding is really who they say they are. But in the immunity passport case, like the business that wants to know someone um, who's trying to in- eat instead of a restaurant is really who say who they say they are is going to skew scan a QR code and they're not going to like request your birth certificate or whatever. So there's just different levels of um, verifying someone's identity that I think makes the credentialing use case more viable. It's more about reducing administrative overhead than it is, um, you know, ensuring that someone says who they are and ensuring that someone has really had a vaccine. So if we move on to the Melody project, this is a collaboration among 10 major pharma companies that was announced in 2019. And the point was to use a blockchain-based infrastructure and with federated learning, enable training of algorithms without sharing your internal data. So basically 10 pharma companies said, okay, we can share uh, our data um, in order to train algorithms, but other parties still won't know what our baseline information is. So that sounds very promising for uh, speeding up drug development. And I 
think it would be awesome to see that also in vaccine development, which is happening with a warp speed, leaving aside that that's the name of the initiative in, in the US. So did you see that any uh, project like this, like Melody, was also used for vaccine development? You are following the Melody projects more closely. Yeah, I am. Um, I don't think that it was used for vaccine development. I mean, Melody is really a research and development project with an eye towards becoming production ready in, in its later stages. So the very first year of Melody was entirely dedicated to uh, basically defining and honing the security model and then running a series of audits. So I, I wrote about this in a blog post that I have. I'll, I'll send you, you can um, put it in the links to the show. But mm-hmm. in order, in, in a federated learning network, right, all these parties are training algorithms on their data without ever showing their data. But the, the, the sort of problem with this is when you are trying to fit an algorithm to a data to make a prediction with it, um, that algorithm sort of embeds information in it by uh, trying to fit itself so closely to some information. Um, you can like leave traces of your underlying data in it. And this is obviously a bad thing if you're training your data on sensitive information that you want to keep private. So there's a trade-off that you have between privacy and accuracy. And you want, as an enterprise, if you want to collaborate with your uh, competitors on a federated learning algorithm, you want some level of privacy as a minimum guarantee, uh, which means you need to make a sacrifice of accuracy. And the first year of the Melody project was trying to ensure that um, there's a minimum level of privacy that could be guaranteed to all the participants before they actually use their sensitive information on it. And this is like a, a, a pretty remarkably difficult technical challenge today. And then you need third parties uh, that are independent to audit and ensure that you're actually meeting that minimum, minimum level of privacy. And uh, the Melody project was able to do that, but it, it did take them a whole year. And then the next two years of the project now are um, going from this minimum level of privacy that they have and trying to maximize the accuracy of the algorithm that is being trained without sacrificing any level of privacy. Uh, But back in March, the Melody project had not yet gone through like all these audits and independent certifications that they could meet the minimum level of privacy that these enterprises need to, um, turn the software on in their sensitive information. So maybe if uh, the pandemic had happened, you know, eight months later, Melody could have been used uh, to speed up vaccine development. But uh, unfortunately, it wasn't in the place to be used at the time, I think. So, but the, the next pandemic, whenever it happens, hopefully a long time from now, uh, we'll have these systems in place. Yeah, yeah. Well, I still hope that the next pandemic does not come too soon. Um, we, we mentioned that Melody is a research project. So what about other 
blockchain projects that perhaps are already used in practice. Are there any? Is the technology ripe enough to be used in practice? Yeah, I, th I think it is uh, getting there. I mean, if you want, if you really want to do something with blockchain technology, you could today. Um, but the, like some of the developer tooling still isn't where I would like it to be. Uh, some of the you know understanding of it isn't where you want to to be. So there's certainly things that might uh, be barriers, but the technology is ready to be used. Um, there's no longer challenges around scaling. You you can um, get around those if if you'd like. There are tools for privacy as well. So th these kind of barriers that held people back uh, in maybe 2017, 2018, I don't think are really applicable, at least insofar as it relates to scaling uh, and privacy and, and maybe some enterprise integration stuff as well. As far as things that are live and going beyond pilot, I would point you to um, Procredix, which is doing provider credentialing. Uh, allowing different providers within the U.S. to consume the, the credentials that other providers have generated, uh, which allows them to onboard new healthcare professionals way quicker. It takes a couple months to do it normally, and they can cut that down to uh, a few days because much of what is being done in the process of onboarding a healthcare professional is repeated multiple different times. Then, um, Uh, you you can use a blockchain to record like instances of the documents that need to be procured, which are the same across different onboarding procedures, uh, hash them to a blockchain and allow other parties to consume these at a fee, which will allow them to onboard new healthcare professionals way quicker, uh, ultimately revenue generating. It's a win-win-win for everybody involved. Uh, some other things that are live and have gone beyond pilot right now are um, MetaLedger and their VRS solution, which is helping companies to comply with the first requirement of the Drug Supply Chain Security Act within the U.S., uh, uh, which has to do with uh, the traceability of medicines. Uh, and I think there are a couple value-based payments systems that are, are live within the U.S., that are helping parties to uh, speed up the adjudication of value-based payments where uh, outcomes and where payments are tied to outcomes and you need some shared understanding of what outcomes were in order to pay out uh, payments to the appropriate party. What about in the area of patient records? In 2018, when ICOs were a popular way of fundraising, over 100 teams tried to compete, or not compete, just tried to raise money uh, with ICOs to create a blockchain patient record where patients would potentially even be rewarded if they opened up their records for research or for pharma. How do you see companies manage patient data uh, with blockchain? And is there already an understanding and preparedness of healthcare institutions to install such an infrastructure? Or are we just not there yet at all? Since, you know, the interoperability issues are very much present still. Well, 
I mean, it's a good, it's a good question. There are, there are a lot of people that were chasing this dream, uh, including me at some points in my career, I should say. Uh, but the problems that exist with the blockchain patient record space, I don't think are necessarily technical. There are, uh, there are some things that you would like, like a better way of storing files in a, in a decentralized way, for example. And, and that's like a technical challenge that hasn't yet become overcome. Um, but if you were willing to make some compromises on those parts of the system, then the remaining problems really have to do with business incentives and governance and uh, like social challenges. One of them being interoperability, like you said. And it, I find it uh, very hard to see uh, a traditional healthcare enterprise you're throwing away their billion-dollar Epic or Cerner implementation and uh, deciding to install some blockchain EHR or something like that, right? I, maybe what the, uh, the path forward instead could be is with the um, ONCs, a regulatory body in the U.S., their uh, information blocking regulations coming into force. There will be standardized APIs that are easy for patients to request their data from. And this could be a way for patients to at least populate their health record with their information uh, in a much more easy way than historically they've had. But then, uh, you know, you, you would just have your information on your smartphone. Maybe it's controlled by a blockchain there. You don't have all the other parties in the network that you would need to to really make it work and, and make it make sense. So this problem of um, creating a network and getting multiple parties on, on this network is really the thorny one that I haven't seen any anybody been able to solve at, the, uh, at least to this stage. So it's still more like a dream. Still a dream. Still a dream. But it, it's, it's like what the whole blockchain and healthcare space likes to talk about. And... Uh, still work towards to, after like a couple of years in this space, it's all anybody talks about uh, at a conference and, you know, I'm taking small steps to it over time as well, but it is a dream today and will remain like that for some time. Do you see that uh, the whole blockchain space made a lot of uh, progress in the last few years? Because my impression is that after, um, the focus moved away from ICOs that somehow I'm, I'm going to say this metaphorically, but kind of the, the blockchain development just had time to develop itself with all, without all the limelight uh, put on it, you know, and the hype of the potential that that's there or has been uh, misinterpreted of being there. Yeah, I would agree with that. It was it was pretty weird, actually, how this space developed because in um, you know, the end of 2017 was when the crypto bubble popped. And uh, that was when like a lot of the mainstream folks that didn't really know anything about crypto left. No offense to them, <laughs> of course. but uh, And you just had left in the crypto space a bunch of builders who were really uh, value aligned and understood the technology and um, you know weren't in it necessarily for the money but it took quite some time for that pop to be felt within the blockchain and healthcare space it's kind of odd I, i've never really been able to 
make sense uh, of that. So the uh, sort of hype kept on going for a couple of months, well into 2018, maybe a little bit into 2019 as well. And then it quiet, quieted down and you stopped seeing like ICOs and uh, some of the more crazy ideas that had been flung around. And uh, there was a m- more muted time of building where folks could uh, build things without the limelight. They could uh, come to a shared understanding of what these technologies are actually good at and, and what they're not before. Um, it seems like we're about to gear up for another uh, another run in the limelight, maybe in a couple months. Mm-hmm. So I would agree. I think it was uh, overall good for the space too. What would you say to those that say that blockchain is okay and has some positive sides, but existing technologies can already solve a lot of issues related to privacy and data security, which are among the top qualities mentioned when talking about what's positive about blockchain solutions? I I don't necessarily disagree with that statement. Uh, although it is it is complicated, and, and I think like some of the promise of blockchain technology has yet to be realized, and it may not be realized for some time. There's sort of this idea of a decentralized web. Web three is what it what it's called, where everybody will own their data, and uh, folks will get paid to contribute it to services. It'll be more private. All of these things, user-driven, community-owned, all these great things. And a a lot of the infrastructure for that is possible. And in the last three years, since the last uh, time in the high plate, uh, limelight, to to use your words, there's been like a lot of building towards it. But we're we're not there yet. Uh, You can sort of see the puzzle pieces now and how they might fit together. And they're real now. Uh, I don't think they were really substantial in 2017 but yeah they don't exist today so i think today for the most part that statement is true although um, you can see how in the future with a little bit more time uh, resources and investment some of the more like web3 decentralized web everybody has their own data it's all private etc kind of vision could come to life um yeah how fast do you think that could be are we talking three years five years ten years time i I don't know the uh it's a good question if you made me predict i'd i'd say two to five years before there is like a real internet scale community that uh looks like what uh, everybody seems to think blockchains will really bring to the internet of user-owned communities, of private data, of more secure data, and, and this and that. That's a, an optimistic outlook then. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I'm uh, pretty close to the, the technology that's being built. So it's it's an optimistic time. Uh, I feel better about the space today than I did you know, a year ago, and certainly too. You've been writing a lot about open governance network and neutral platforms. So let's talk a little bit about that. What are open governance networks and why are they they interesting for healthcare? Well, so there's this idea of neutral platforms. It was first articulated by um, Chris Dixon of A16Z fame. 
in his seminal essay called Why Decentralization Matters. And it looked at this life cycle that exists within platforms, where when platforms are starting out, they do everything they can to recruit users and uh, third-party complements like developers or businesses, media organizations, to um, get on their platform, start using it. And as more users and more third parties like developers or businesses are on the platform, it becomes way more valuable. Uh, and there's like this exponential uh, effect of how fast the network is growing and how valuable it is. But at, at, at some point, you get enough users and third parties on the platform whereby um, the incremental extra user isn't that much more valuable. And at this point, it may be more advantageous to a platform uh, to start trying to extract value from its users as opposed to uh, trying to bring new users onto the platform or to um, the platform may compete with the creators and the businesses, the developers on its platform instead of uh, trying to enable them. As an example, Facebook kicked its competitor Zynga off the platform. Twitter shut third-party clients off. And in healthcare, 23andMe shut out uh, third-party analytics services off of um, natively integrating into its API. Uh, And these things are ultimately value-destroying in most cases for users who would benefit from multiple different parties building on this ecosystem. But since historically platforms like Facebook and Twitter have been centralized, there's no real way to stop this from happening. You need new types of infrastructure like what we've been talking about in blockchains and uh, this Web3 dream of user-owned, distributed, decentralized platforms and whatnot. And if you used a blockchain to underlie these new generation of platforms, then they would be um, neutral to all users and businesses on top of them. So the platform couldn't turn around at some point and start to compete with the businesses that are building on it. Uh, And that would foster a lot more innovation. Um, It would allow entrepreneurs to feel safe in building on certain infrastructure. Uh, And it wouldn't allow businesses to keep others Uh, out of the ecosystem at the loss of users. So one place that you can see this today is within Epic. Uh, That is a platform. It has really strong network effects. It's been adopted in a number of different places, but they are pretty closed in that they don't allow others to build applications on top of their software. Uh, And maybe they allow you to write some things that will read data Um, by using their app store, but they won't let you actually uh, change any of the internal workflows or uh, to write data back or or integrate in in a deeper way. And one concrete way that this has um, shown up is that Epic may, uh, Epic bought a telemedicine company. um, And this immediately makes you wonder whether now that Epic has a telehealth app, they're doing telemedicine in the telemedicine business, are they going to change their platform in some way 
to disadvantage other companies like Amwell, for example, or or uh, ZocDoc or other telemedicine providers so that they aren't able to access the health data within an EHR, uh, an Epic EHR, or integrate in, in some deeper way. And everybody you know, has to use Epic de facto because no other parties can integrate into Epic. Uh, or to use your, your um, health passport app. Maybe Epic launches their own health passport and they don't allow anyone else to create a health passport that integrates into an Epic EHR. So th- there are all sorts of like examples of these places in healthcare where you can see how an existing incumbent uh, has misaligned incentives and a closed ecosystem where it would be really great if we had open and neutral infrastructure that would allow multiple different parties to build on a level playing field. And that would foster more innovation and better services. I think uh, consumers would ultimately be better served. Certainly entrepreneurs and developers would be, uh, and the actual, the actual companies that deliver uh, healthcare would be as well. Um, I think some of these problems are the reason why the right information doesn't get to the right parties at the right time and patients end up suffering because of that. And to like loop this back, this is a long answer, but I'll, I'll let you, uh, I'll, I'll let you follow up in, in just a second to loop this back to open governance networks, which is what you were referring to. Um, open governance networks are this new type of Linux Foundation project that they recently launched, where the Linux Foundation, uh, as a neutral third party that um, sees over and facilitates a lot of critical open source software, is going to be acting um, as a facilitator and a hoster of critical open source code within blockchain networks. And they hope to build uh, communities around these in specific industries like healthcare. I think they've got one in, in telecoms uh, to try and build like the kind of platforms that I'm talking about in a decentralized way, hosted by a, a neutral party that isn't subject to the commercial in, uh, interests of any individual enterprise. So this is sort of their uh, their answer to the same problems that I was just talking about, uh, and a, a neutral platform is one way to look at it. So that was a long answer and and I'll I'll give you a chance to react or follow up. Yeah. So my follow up is that it sounds like a great idea, something that healthcare could definitely use. The question is, is it viable? Is it possible without regulation or legislative action to enforce this? Because, you know, you mentioned yourself Epic, for example, has a lot of power. So if you've got power players, uh, that solutions like this would be hurtful to, how can you drive progress forward? Well, I think, um, I'm, uh, yeah, I, I generally think that a lot of that there could be second order effects that folks do not think of from, um, from regulatory actions uh, and some of the discourse around like antitrust in the U S right now, I think stems from um, hindsight bias of looking back at an action that was taken under a great deal of uncertainty. 
and uh, judging a decision by its outcomes as opposed to the actual setting at the time. Uh, so I, I don't think that like breaking up Epic is going to be the, for example, to relate it back to the antitrust discourse within the U.S. I don't think uh, breaking up Epic is going to be the right thing to do. But I do think that opening up Epic or opening up Facebook or Amazon or, or these companies is the right approach of um, having them create open standardized APIs that under the right situations with the right safeguards for consumers and patients, uh, letting other applications be able to interoperate and use these APIs within their services. So taking your social graph on Twitter, for example, and being able to use it within another service, uh, I think this would be, or your, um, you know, your shopping information from Amazon or your social graph from Facebook or, you know, your data from Epic, for example. So I, this is the approach that I would take of, of opening up these parties rather than breaking them up. And to, to large point, um, I think this does map well with what the ONC has done in their information blocking regulations, uh, which give a, um, an actual, like stick along with the carrot that has existed thus far to interoperability. So if healthcare enterprises are not providing easy APIs that are standardized for consumers to access their data and mediate it where they wish, then um, the ONC can actually impose penalties on healthcare enterprises now, as opposed to, you know, uh, before where there was really just incentives to interoperate uh, instead of, real fees. So I do think that does achieve uh, this opening up that, that I'm talking uh, about. And this is my preferred measure. There may be other ways to kind of facilitate these neutral platforms, but I would need to think about that a little bit more. Speaking about uh, opening up, do you still see that uh, there's a discussion happening whether a public or a private blockchain makes more sense. So perhaps what are the challenges that you see in practical adoption of blockchain uh, up to date? Is still is this still the question that's, that's uh, visible or discussed often? Uh, yeah, so... I th it's, it's still talked about a little bit. It's not as much as I actually think it should be. Um, I am of the opinion that public blockchains will ultimately be more important than private ones, which is like not a very popular opinion within my space. Most people think the opposite uh, because in the healthcare industry, there are, uh, like a lot of information is sensitive, right? So you don't want to put that on on a public blockchain and then enterprises generally just don't like interacting with public blockchains. Uh, maybe they, maybe because of their reputation or, or something like this, but uh, those arguments don't really resonate with me because um, even on a private blockchain, you're not going to post sensitive data. Like no sensible party is going to put uh, a patient's health record on a private blockchain. And, you know, you're going to store it off chain somewhere and then maybe post a hash at most 
onto a private blockchain. So if you're doing this, then why not just post that hash onto a public blockchain? It's not the actual health data itself. By using a public blockchain, you get more guarantees of integrity. Uh, you don't need to host nodes and deal with like all of the headaches. It costs a lot of money, actually, to keep up a node. And um, you know, you're probably going to be paying a service provider to help you do that and monitor it. And the transaction fees are not that bad uh, comparative to hosting your own nodes. So, and, and, you know, moreover, there's all sorts of other stuff that you can do on a public blockchain that interoperate with. There's uh, a whole, whole ecosystem there. So I really lean towards the, uh, towards public blockchains as a pro, as opposed to private ones, but this is not, um, yeah, not the consensus opinion within my space and i i think uh i think the challenges have to do with um a difficulty in interacting with them like i've been talking about a, a little bit there's not very good developer tooling in the blockchain space and particularly for the kind of systems that enterprises are, are used to working with it's just not that easy to interact with either a public or a private blockchain um, and I don't think there is as good of an understanding as, uh, as there could be on the benefits of public blockchains versus private ones. I think early on in the discourse of when maybe 2016, 2017, um, there was a rush by the innovators at the time just to sort of dismiss away public blockchains, uh, and try to put private blockchains in a totally different category than public because public blockchains are associated with cryptocurrencies and like nobody wanted to be the guy in an enterprise that was talking about cryptocurrency uh, for whatever reason. And because of this, you know, this original um, discarding of public blockchains, I don't think people have built up the kind of institutional knowledge or uh, maybe ways of thinking about public blockchains and their benefits. Uh, and I see them as generally underused to date. Your newsletter is your uh, own personal project, but for work you are a part of Consensus Health as the Director of Product Management and Strategy. Can you tell me a little bit more about the project solutions built by Consensus Health? Yeah, Consensus Health uh, is building specifically things that use the Ethereum blockchain. We think that uh, the Ethereum blockchain is the best place to be building for the community, for its, its uh, unique ability to tether to the Ethereum mainnet if needed, for all of the tooling that exists, uh, for its security, you know, all these different things. And uh, we use it in a couple different contexts, but I focus on our enterprise uh, federated learning product. So we've been talking about federated learning um, earlier in the conversation, and we are building a stack of technologies that is specific to healthcare enterprises uh, that want to use federated learning on their data, whether that is a pharma company on its preclinical data or maybe something in the supply chain. Or if you are a healthcare enterprise that has patient data and is interested in collaborating with um, with other healthcare enterprises, uh, we're building the technology for that that 
you know, meets all the cybersecurity, compliance, privacy, bioethics uh, requirements that an organization would need. That sounds very interesting. I actually never thought about uh, uh, federated learning perhaps being an enhancer of interest in blockchain, you know, but when you have an idea that you could accelerate your research uh, through it by uh, developing your own algorithms with the help of other institutions' data, that, that's kind of something that I think sounds much more compelling for perhaps those that are at the moment still skeptical about blockchain. Well, and federated learning has a um, has a, a big problem in most of its uh, most of its deployments. So, in a traditional federated learning network, you have a single party that is deciding what algorithm is deployed on uh, the devices or the the computers within the network. Uh, so, Google and their autocorrect prediction network is the most popular and most well-known example of whenever you're typing um, your smartphone will give you predictions on what you're typing next or, or maybe correct what you're saying and it is one party google that uh, decides what algorithm is trained and, and how it's used within the network but in uh, the context of enterprises and sensitive health information this is totally not tenable uh, because giving one party probably your competitor, the ability to choose what is run on your infrastructure is problematic. Um, you know, they may deploy an algorithm that purposely trains really closely to your data. Uh, and as a result, your data is essentially embedded within the algorithm. That's um, something that is possible to do. And your data ends up being revealed to the other parties. But the solution to this is using um, a blockchain to decentralize control over what is trained on the network and to equip participants with data access management tools for them to be able to say only this data set or this data set are available for training and you know, all these other data sets uh, are off limits. And then to record the actions of a federated learning network on a ledger so that there is an audit trail um, where participants are then sure that their policies are respected and that um, their data actually hasn't been revealed. And then lastly, uh, there's some more forward-looking and, and really interesting work that we've been doing on layering on incentives to these networks too of, um, you know, getting a group of enterprises together to collaborate on an algorithm and the resulting algorithm may be allocating percentage ownage of that algorithm to different parties, depending on how valuable their data contributions were. Um, and it's like, it's, it's difficult to do this, but it, theoretically it is possible with the right mechanism for allocating contributions and compensating parties appropriately, which would really incentivize more collaboration uh, and more participation in these networks and, and help them to scale. So those are the, the places 
where uh, we see blockchains fitting into federated learning networks and uh, how I think they really enable them to truly work in a collaborative way and in scale uh, in a way that's not possible in traditional federated learning networks. I just have one more question for you, and that is, what's your prediction about uh, blockchain in the upcoming three to five years? We've talked a little bit about it before, but, you know, if you... If you put it like that, what would your answer be? Um, I think, uh, I think. Well, one thing that I can say that's concrete is I think uh, crypto is going to go from being a joke to being very important in people's lives really quickly. That's like on the public blockchain side, and then on the private blockchain side, the more like enterprise focused thing. I think. A lot of the ideas that people had in 2017, 2018 are going to um, start to become viable and true with new types of infrastructure that we have after like years and years of, of building and investment. Um, but I, I don't think these things are going to end up being realized in the way that most people initially think they will. Like these new types of tools that use new infrastructures oftentimes uh, their first killer use cases will start out looking like jokes or like games. And then um, over time, they become something really of their own and fully fledged. And uh, their true potential and maybe application to other things, other places are really realized. So that's like a roundabout way of saying, I think many of the things that folks thought would happen earlier in 2017 will happen, but maybe just not in the way that we expect. Very vague prediction. Um, but we're, uh, yeah, there are a lot of the, pl- the things in place for that to happen. And then I'm, I'm very excited about uh, federated learning, obviously, and its potentials for more collaborative algorithms and uh, really scaling things to, to many different parties. Uh, and I think we'll see federated learning algorithms be embedded into more consumer-facing uh, health applications. And this may in some ways like realize some of the promises of blockchain. Uh, for, for example, I have an Oura ring, which gives me metrics on my sleep and my heart rate today. And uh, this is done within a silo. I I know my heart rate and my metrics and whatever, and that's analyzed within a silo. But, you know, I have no easy way of scaling this up to a community around me. You have quantified self, but not the quantified community around me. Uh, And I think you could, you could see how um, by layering on federated learning or are there similar technologies you could quickly build something that was new and, and valuable uh, of doing collective community-based analytics on top of uh, health information that is valuable to to, um, to a community, going from quantified self to, to quantified community. And I, I fully expect that to happen within the next two to five years, if not sooner. That, al- that almost sounds uh, futuristic, but if I remember correctly, you're quite a, um, not a fan, but very interested in biohacking. Very, yeah. Uh, I, I think the future will look very different than what people think it looks, uh, than what today looks like. I mean, 
it's almost ontological, right? It's the future. So it has to be different. But uh, I'm willing to entertain these kind of ideas. And I am also very interested in, in biohacking. I think there's a, a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of potential there. The future is going to look different. That almost sounds like you know something that we don't. So do share how the future will look like. Well, I mean, any of this stuff is something that uh, you and I know. Maybe um, there are other things that I know that, that you don't that are just not distributed to the rest of the world, right? There's, uh, I think it's a Gibson quote of the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. So these technological trends that we know today are, are like secrets that everybody else is, is not in on. Uh, and that's why we do a podcast on them, right? To help the rest of the world get in right. on the secret. You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. If you enjoyed the show, leave a rating or a review by going to www.lovethepodcast.com slash Faces of Digital Health and you will be redirected to the platform appropriate for your device. Stay tuned.